Good morning. Open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 23. These are verses we all know and love. They are verses that we are very familiar with. And yet it is good for us and beneficial to us to read them. Beginning in verse 22, we read, Immediately he, that is Christ, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. I believe this story serves to illustrate the lives of countless believers in the United States today. Many precious saints are sinking. They are sinking not into some body of water, but into anxiety and fear. And I would submit to you, this is because they have taken their eyes off of our Almighty Father and have instead fixed them on all the foolishness that surrounds us. It's easy to do, isn't it? Due to technology, the world is a lot smaller than it used to be. We can, like never before, know what is happening all over the country. All we need is our smartphone. It is here that we must be careful, know and understand that placing all the evil and wicked happenings of the world constantly before our eyes is bound to affect us negatively. Now, I'm not saying it's not good to keep abreast of current events, nor am I advocating that we become like ostriches with our heads in the sand. I'm simply stating that if we want to thrive spiritually, if we want to succeed in trusting God as we are commanded to do, then we must set our gaze not on the wind and the waves, but on their ruler. That is what we must do. Do you want to know how to deal with anxiety? Spend more time contemplating the perfections of God than the problems of the world. Consider God's attributes more than man's atrocities. Think more about the God of all men than you do about godless men. 
Charles Spurgeon, as a very young man, once asked in one of his sermons, Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. He says, I know nothing which can comfort so much the soul. I know nothing that can so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. I could not agree more. And so this morning, I invite you to consider the greatest of all subjects, God himself. More specifically, I invite you to consider the sovereignty of God. With everything that is happening in our country, nothing could be more helpful than a knowledge of this doctrine. Before going any further, however, let us go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask for humble hearts. For hearts ready and eager to hear from you and to accept whatever you may have to say to us. Save and sanctify this morning according to your glorious and gracious will. Amen. God is sovereign. He is God in fact as well as in name. But what do we mean by that? We mean at least two things. First, we mean that God does as he pleases. In the words of A.W. Pink, God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. This means that absolutely nothing can thwart the will of God. Nothing can frustrate his plans or hinder his purposes. To see this in scripture, we could go to a number of passages, but we'll limit ourselves to three. First, turn to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46 verses 8 through 10 says, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The phrase, my purpose will be established, means that God's plans do not change. They are never interrupted, nor can they be. There is no plan B with God. There is only what he has decreed. The phrase, I will accomplish all my good pleasure, means that nothing can prevent God from doing what he wants to do. Furthermore, it means that once God does what he wants, it cannot be undone. J. Alec Mateer wrote, The whole sweep of history, 
from its inception to the things still in process and on to the end is under his sovereign rule. He does not await the turn of events and then wonder what to do about them. They all emerge in order on the stage of history at the dictate of his word. In a word, the Lord is a God who is truly God. As in creation, so in history, he cannot be thwarted or gainsaid. Even when some particular human experience bothers his people, it is still the unalterable will of God. Next, turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel comes right after Ezekiel. Ezekiel, of course, comes after Isaiah and Jeremiah. This is perhaps my favorite verse on this aspect of God's sovereignty. And I say that because of who's speaking. It's Nebuchadnezzar. And you might ask, who was Nebuchadnezzar? We read about that in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 4. It says, Nebuchadnezzar was the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. Now, look at what this king says about the Lord in the second half of verse 34 and verse 35. Nebuchadnezzar, after being humbled by God, says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? It doesn't get much clearer than that, now does it? God is, and the God who is, is the God who reigns. He reigned before the beginning. He reigned in the beginning. He's reigned ever since the beginning. He reigned then, he reigns now, and he will reign forevermore. That's verse 34. Verse 35 tells us that God's will is irresistible. Again, he does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. While man is accountable to God, God is accountable to no one. He is the potter. We are the what? Clay. Last, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture this morning. And we have to when we're speaking of the sovereignty of God. It is good for us to see what the Word of God says about this subject. Ephesians chapter 1. The last two words of verse 10 and verse 11 say, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. Pay attention to these last words. Who works, God works, all things after the counsel of his will. I encourage everyone to do a study on the words predestined, purpose, counsel, and will. For now, it will suffice to say that through everything that happens, God is accomplishing His will. Actually, as I'll talk about in a little bit, everything that happens is the will of God. To sum up then, 
everything that we've learned so far, no plan of God's can be derailed. What he does, no one can undo. No one can restrain his hand or demand him to give account for his actions. God does as he pleases both in heaven and on earth, and he works out every event to bring about the accomplishment of his will. That is what the word of God tells us. It's no wonder Spurgeon said there is no attribute more comforting to God's children than the sovereignty of God. We all know that God has great and glorious plans for us. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says that he or that we were predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. But let me ask you a question. What comfort would that be to us if it were not guaranteed He could carry it out. The good news is no person or circumstance can frustrate God's purpose for our lives. Did you get that? We can rest assured that nothing, not the coronavirus, not the riots and looting, not the wildfires, not whoever wins in November, absolutely nothing can interrupt all the good God has purposed to do us. Rather, In the sovereign plan of God, all things are accomplishing His will for us. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. He causes all things to work together for good for those of us who love Him. We can't miss this. Over all the actions and events of our lives, God is in control, doing as He pleases. And not apart from those events, not in spite of those events, but through those events. God didn't just make a plan. He is also making it work out through everything that happens. Consider Joseph and his being sold into slavery by his brothers. God was not working apart from or in spite of his brother's wickedness. He was working through it. And thus Jacob or Joseph could say to his brothers in Genesis chapter 45 verse 8, Now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God. When we read news articles, we should never conclude that God has his work cut out for him. Instead, we should conclude that he is doing his work, albeit oftentimes in ways we cannot fathom. It does not matter what the headline is. God's perfect plan keeps moving forward uninterrupted towards its goal. Isn't that good news? Nothing can interfere with God's purposes for us or for the world. God is sovereign. I said by that we mean two things. First, we mean God does as he pleases. Second, we mean God is in absolute control. God is in absolute control. God alone sits upon the throne of the universe. He is not passive, but is actively governing the affairs of men. That in in and of itself is a soft pillow for our weary heads. Circumstances are not in charge. Satan is not in charge. The people in Washington are not in charge. God is in charge. Psalm chapter 103 or Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. God is in complete control over completely everything. R.C. Sproul would say, 
there is not a maverick molecule in the universe. He loved to say that. I love to say that. Now, it has to be said that this truth is often denied. Even good and godly men have attempted to take God off his throne. So I would like to ask you a question. Have you ever considered that if it were not true that God is in absolute control, we could not trust him? If anything, no matter how small or insignificant could happen outside of God's will, we could not trust him. God is either in control absolutely or he is absolutely not in control. This doctrine, you see, is much more than fuel for theological discussion. It's foundational to our trust in God. A.W. Pink said, To deny the sovereignty of God is to enter upon a path which, if followed to its logical terminus, leads to blank atheism. If God is not in control, I cannot trust him. I should not trust him. Whether or not God is sovereign is of the greatest importance, and thankfully, thankfully, the clear testimony of Scripture is that he is. And I want to spend the remainder of our time showing you several examples of this from God's Word. First, I want to show you that God is in control of the smallest events as well as the greatest. God is in control of the smallest events as well as the greatest. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. While the casting of lots was often done to determine important decisions, none can argue that the act itself was the smallest of events the casting of a lot. And yet, Solomon tells us it was God that was behind its every decision. That, That boggles the mind. Charles Bridges said that this teaches us that things that we conceive to be accident are really under providence. In other words, in the providence of God, there are no accidents. What is often considered good luck or bad luck to man is the appointment of God. Turn now to Matthew chapter 10. We'll see two more instances of God being in control of the smallest events. Matthew chapter 10, and find verses 29 and 30. Those verses say, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fail to fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Oftentimes, these verses are interpreted as meaning that not one sparrow dies apart from God's knowing about it, 
and that he knows exactly how many hairs we have upon our heads. Now, that is certainly true, but that is not the meaning of these words. The true meaning of these words is that God, in his providence, controls the smallest of events, such as the death of a sparrow and the amount of hair we have on our head at any given moment. John MacArthur writes, Jesus was teaching that God providentially controls the timing and circumstances of of such insignificant events as the death of a sparrow. Even the number of hairs upon our heads is controlled by his sovereign will. In other words, he says, divine providence governs the smallest details and even the most mundane matters. These, he says, are powerful affirmations of the sovereignty of God. Now that we've seen that God is in control of the smallest events, let's turn to the greatest. Does God govern things that really matter? Of course he does. He's controlled the the greatest, most significant significant events ever since the beginning. I mean, what does Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 tell us? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, to that, someone might say, well, sure, God created all that exists, but since then, he's taken a hands-off approach. Really? What about Babel? What about the flood? What about the exodus? What about the cross? It could be argued that the cross was the greatest event in human history. Was God in control of that? Let's see. Turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Who is in control when it comes to the things that really matter? Verse 10 says of John chapter 19, So Pilate said to him, that is Christ, You do not speak to me? Remember, he's on trial. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? At this point, you have to wonder if Jesus cracked a smile. One of those, (laughs) that's funny kind of moments. We are told Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So we see that God and not man was in charge of the greatest event in human history, and we can be sure he's been in control of every other major event. But what do we do with this truth? As believers, we rest in it. As one author asserted, what is true for the sparrow and for Jesus is true for you and me. No detail of our life is too insignificant for our Heavenly Father's attention, and no circumstance is so big that He cannot control it. Amen? Even those little things that bother you, He notices. They're not too small. And those big things are not out of His control. Now that we've seen that God is in control of the smallest events as well as the greatest, I want to show you in the second place that God is in control of the good things that occur as well as the bad. Go back to the book of Isaiah, this time to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. 
This is a verse that bothers many people. But as we, should, as we will see, it, it really shouldn't. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7 says, The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity, I am the Lord who does all these. In Lamentations chapter 3 verse 38, we are asked, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? And of course the answer is yes. The lesson to be learned from such passages and which is taught in principle throughout the pages of Scripture is God controls both the good and the bad. He is in control of both prosperity and adversity. In the words of the ancient theologian Job, he is the one who gives and he is the one who what? Takes away. Now inevitably... This truth will lead someone to ask, if God is good, and if he is in control of the good and the bad, then why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? That's an easy question for a Calvinist to answer. There is no good people. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? There are no good people. Listen, the only time something bad has ever happened to a good person was on the cross, right? The Bible says there is none righteous, not even one. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The truth is, if we are not in hell right now, we are getting more than we deserve. So you see, the question we should be asking really isn't, why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Why are we alive right now? Why are we not in hell right now? That's the question. And the answer is because God is a compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Having answered that question, I want to stress that God being in control of the good and the bad is preferable. It's a precious truth to the people of God. Let me ask you something. Would you rather have God be behind your adverse circumstances, working them for his glory and your good, or would you rather his hands be tied, hoping that you make it out all right? Would you rather your cancer be from the Lord according to his infinite wisdom and goodness, or would you rather it be purposeless bad luck? I've already mentioned that Spurgeon called the sovereignty of God the most comforting attribute to the children of God. Listen to why he said that. He said it is because under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they, that is the children of God, believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. If we know that our afflictions are ultimately from God, we can be comforted in any affliction because we know they come from a loving Father, because we know they are for our benefit and not to our detriment. Much, much more can be said on these points, but we need to keep moving Third, I want to show you that God is in control of inanimate matter as well as irrational creatures. He's in control of inanimate matter as well as irrational creatures. 
inanimate matter does whatever God bids it to do. You know this. Just think of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, we read, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. We read that God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bringing forth fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And what we see in that first chapter of Genesis, we see throughout the rest of the Bible, right? Later on, when God saw that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually and decided to judge the world, we read that he brought a flood of waters upon the earth. At his command, water poured down from heaven and burst forth from the ground. Consider the plagues God brought upon Egypt. At his word, light turned into darkness, water turned into blood, and hail fell from the sky. We're even told that God controlled where the hail fell, right? We are told that only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Time does not allow for us to review every example of God being sovereign over inanimate matter. If we had time, we could go over God raining fire and brimstone over Sodom and Gomorrah, his parting the Red Sea, and his causing the ground to open up to swallow those who rebelled against him. It will have to be enough for us to say that God reigns over every created thing. All the elements do what he says and only what he says. Earth and air, fire and water, hail and snow, stormy winds and angry seas all perform the word of his power and fulfill his sovereign pleasure. What about irrational creatures? That is the animals. Scripture says that God reigns over them as well. This fact can be seen both before and after the fall. Before the fall, we are told God brought all the animals to Adam so that he could name them. Similarly, After the fall, God brought all the animals to each kind, two of each kind, into the ark. Pink said, The lion of the jungle, the elephant of the forest, the bear of the polar regions, the ferocious panther, the untamable wolf, the fierce tiger, the high-soaring eagle, and the crawling crocodile, see them all in their native fierceness and yet quietly submitting to the will of their creator and coming two by two into the ark. I get excited if my cat comes to me when I call it. We've already viewed, reviewed some of the plagues God brought upon Egypt. There we also see God's sovereign rule over irrational creatures. We see him sending frogs, swarms of flies, and locusts. We also see him striking the cattle of the field so that all the cattle of the Egyptians and the Egyptians only died. Again, time does not allow for us to review all the examples we have in the word of God. There's still the ravens that brought food to Elijah. There's the lions that didn't swallow Daniel and the great fish that did Jonah. There's the great catch of fish by the disciples as well as the fish that paid Peter's taxes. We have to conclude that God rules over everything that crawls on the earth, everything that flies in the air, and everything that swims in the sea. All of them perform for him without fail. 
So I would encourage you, whenever you see a great storm or some powerful animal, remind yourself that they do the bidding of your Heavenly Father. His power is beyond comprehension. He is more than able to care for us. Amen? So far, we've seen that God is in control of the smallest events as well as the greatest, the good things that occur as well as the bad, and the and he is in control of inanimate matter as well as irrational creatures. In the last place, I want to show you that God is in control of individuals as well as nations. He is in control of individuals as well as nations. One of the most controversial points when it comes to the sovereignty of God is that God is in control of people. We are humanists from birth. We don't like being told that we're not in control. We're masters of our fate. We're the captains of our souls, right? Not according to Scripture. Open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs once again, to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Now go to chapter 19, verse 21. Chapter 19, verse 21. Proverbs 19, 21 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. That is, the plan of the Lord, the purpose of the Lord will stand. Let's look at one more proverb. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it, that is, the Lord turns the king's heart, wherever he, the Lord, wishes. What are these verses telling us? They are telling us that God and not man is in control of the lives of men. Men may plan and devise to do this or that, but unless their plans and devices are consistent with God's purpose, they will not succeed. This is why James tells us that we ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James chapter 4, verse 15. Man cannot do anything if the Lord does not will it. Now this raises certain questions, doesn't it? If man cannot do anything if the Lord does not will it, does that mean when men sin it's because the Lord willed it? And the answer to that is no and yes. We have to distinguish between what is called the perceptive will of God and the decretive will of God. Listen very closely. While God permits, for reasons known only to himself, people to act contrary to and in defiance of his perceptive will, he never permits them to act contrary to his decretive will. It's very important. While God permits, for reasons known only to himself, people to act contrary to and in defiance of his perceptive will, he never permits them to act contrary to his decretive will. Take, for example, the greatest sin ever committed, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Is murder contrary to the revealed will of God? Yes, you shall not murder. And yet, did the father permit the son to be murdered? Yes, in fact, we would say he decreed it. Acts chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And so we see that although sin is not part of God's perceptive will, it does fall under his decretive will. Another way to say that is no person can ever act outside the bonds of God's sovereign will. It's another way of saying God is in absolute control. If someone can act outside the bonds of God's sovereign will, then he is not in control. Absolutely. Now at this point, it must be said that although sin is a part of God's decretive will, he is not the author of sin. God does not cause anyone to sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. Man is responsible for the sins he commits against the Lord. No one can excuse himself by saying, God made me do it. These are deep things, I know. But they are not impractical. They are very useful to us. There is great, great peace to be found here. If God is in control of individual people, that means no one can do anything to us unless it is permitted by the Lord. Isn't that good news? And whatever is permitted to men to be done to us, we can be sure it is for God's glory as well as for our good. No matter who opposes us, we can trust in God. We might not know how the opposition we face is working for our good, but we have God's word that it is. Again, consider Joseph. What did he tell his brothers? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Can you imagine if God were not in control of individuals? If God were not sovereign over the decisions and actions of men, then there would be a major part of our life where we wouldn't be able to trust God. We would be left to defend ourselves against the wicked devices of men. What a nightmare that would be. Thank God he reigns over individuals. Let's move on to nations. Not only does God govern every individual, but he governs all nations. One of the most frequent references to the sovereignty of God in the Bible has to do with his sovereignty over nations and governments. I encourage you to do a study of it. If you do, you will see that God is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God is in complete control of the nations of this world. He and he alone determines who rules what nation. For a clear statement of this truth, go back to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, again, it's after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 4, the second half of verse 17 says, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. 
An example of this very fact can be found later in this chapter. Look at verse 29. It says, Twelve months later, he, that is Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it or bestows it on whomever he wishes. Not only does God determine who reigns, he determines when they reign and how long they reign. What a timely word for us. You get the sense from some Christians today that President Trump is our only hope. Listen, whoever wins in November will be God's man. He will be God's man, not in the sense that he will have a heart after God's own heart, but in the sense that God will be the one who chose him to run this nation. I personally believe that if Biden wins, our country will be the worse for it. But if that is what happens, although our country may be the worse for it, Christians will be the better for it. Because he's working all things for our good. That's not to say life won't get harder for believers. It very well may, but in the sovereign providence of God, it will turn out to our benefit. Isn't that reassuring to remember? Our hope and peace does not or do not depend on who's the president, but on the providence of God. He is governing all things. If we had time, we could see that God is even in control of the decisions rulers make, sometimes to bring blessing to a nation and other times to bring judgment. He also determines the the timing and boundaries of every nation as well as the outcome of all wars. God is in absolute control. And my points aren't exhaustive, obviously. We can look at other things he's in control of. Well, what do we do with all we have learned this morning? Again, we, we rest. We trust. We give thanks. We sleep at night. We resolve to not let current events unsettle us. Let us never forget this settled truth that God is sovereign. Let's pray. Our great God, you and you alone are sovereign over all. You do as you please. No one can stay your almighty hand. Because of this, we know that the good work you have begun in us will be brought to completion. Your plans for us will not and cannot fail. What comfort is in knowing you, you who are in control of all things. We trust that you have a plan made before time and that you are making it work out in time. We fear no one and are comforted in every circumstance, knowing that you mean everything for your glory and our good. Father, we do ask that you show mercy to our country, 
bless us with godly rulers. But no matter what, we rest assured that you govern whoever is governing the country. They would have no authority if you did not give it to them. You are the supreme governor of all. We pray that you bless the church in this nation with your grace, guide it with your spirit, and defend it always with your might. Scatter, confound, overthrow any forces that fight against the church and have mercy on the church in this land. Bless us with true faith. We ask this for the sake of your great name and for the sake of Christ. To you, your Son, and your Spirit be all praise and glory. Amen.